again, I pray that all of you guys are doing so. Uh, welcome again to this gathering of the church family. We want to welcome those who are visiting with us online. Uh, if you're visiting with us online, just drop a little note over in the comment section on our YouTube page. We'd love to hear from you and love to greet you and welcome you uh, as we gather in this way to praise God our King. Church family, a few things to, to celebrate uh, this coming week. A number of birthdays. Uh, today, I have the privilege of celebrating my birthday, uh, Big Five-O. Uh, so join me for some donuts or uh, cupcakes um, virtually uh, in the Google Hangout a little bit later. We'll love to see you guys there. But then also tomorrow, Tanika Taylor has a birthday. Then on Tuesday, our brother Amos Evans uh, has a birthday. And on Thursday, our sister Jasmine LaRoche. Now, you guys know this would have been the week that we celebrated our church anniversary. Um, and Thursday, we would have had our community job fair. Uh, this is how much our sister Jasmine is a servant. She was going to be running that job fair for us uh, on her birthday. And so do congratulate Tanika, Amos, uh, and Jasmine as well as we celebrate birthdays this week. Uh, as you know, um, D.C. is on uh, a stay-at-home order. Um, the ban on public gatherings has been extended at least through the end of April. So that means we'll continue to gather online, um, not in person, online through the end of April in this way. And so continue to pray for our city and pray for our leaders to have wisdom uh, and pray for your neighbors that they stay home uh, and, and not take unnecessary risks, but, but really honor those in authority uh, so that we might see the passing of this pandemic by God's grace uh, as soon as possible. Um, so uh, be in prayer and, and be submitted to leaders in authority. Uh, but most of all, as we have gathered here online to do, uh, be, be worshipful. Be ready to praise our God through it all. So let's praise God together. Good morning, AIC. Um, would you join me in today's scripture reading coming from Romans 6? Verses 12 to 14. This is ESV and it reads, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin in, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Will you pray with me? Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the humbling honor to approach your throne in prayer on behalf of myself and my brothers and sisters. Thank you for allowing us to see yet another Sunday where we can gather virtually to hear from your word. Lord, this time apart, being quarantined, some of us alone in our homes, provides more space and more time for the enemy to try to attack our minds and spirits. Help us not to obey its passions, but to present ourselves to you as those who have been brought from death to life. Would you remind us often that it is because of your son Jesus' death and resurrection that we now have dominion over sin. Thank you for sending your son and for him living the perfect example. Please now forgive us of our sins sins of sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Abba, who knows why we have come to such a time as this? 
Who knows but you why the globe is facing one of its biggest pandemics to have us separate from one another, even to the point of not being able to gather together to worship you. And who knows but you what tomorrow holds. But I ask for your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness to be ever so tangible in our lives as we cling to your truths and hope in your return. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
four factors that create this disordered relationship with our body and God giving us grace. Next week, we'll think about how to address those four things um, with the resources of the scripture and the gospel in the power of the spirit. So if you're taking notes, four things this morning, four factors that distort uh, our relationships with our bodies. Number one is falsehood. Number two is desire. Number three is shame. And number four is fear. Falsehood, desire, shame, and fear. And we're going to see this at the end of Genesis chapter 2 down to Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. Let me offer a word of prayer for us. Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we think about your word. Instruct us. Uh, in how to live in these bodies you have given us, how to view them, how to use them in a way that magnifies your name and brings you honor and glory and praise. We thank you for our bodies. We thank you for the redemption of our bodies. And we pray now that you help us to think well about our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. So look with me in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, and I'll read down to chapter 3, verse 10. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So we see four factors in this text that distort our relationships with our bodies. The first factor is falsehood. It's falsehood. When we believe lies about our bodies, we develop a twisted relationship with our bodies. That's what happens in verses 4 and 5. Satan tempts Eve with a distortion of the truth. Notice now the truth isn't even that he distorts, isn't even specifically about the body. It's about what God has said about this fruit that's forbidden. And Eve then believes the lie long enough to act on it with her body. The truth is that the body was meant to be limited, kept away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now, living by this falsehood, Eve has crossed the line. She's crossed the limits. She has transgressed, and now her body is taking her somewhere and uh, allowing her to do something that God had forbidden, all because she believed a lie. Now, 
we would all agree that we should believe the truth and reject lies, right? But, but how many of us have had the experience of looking up in our lives at some point and realizing that actually we had been rejecting the truth and believing the lie? Sometimes without even intending to do so. Matthew Lee Anderson writes in his book, But more often than not, we don't know which lies and bad arguments we have formed our lives around. After all, the ideas that are deepest in us are almost never learned in a book, but are forged and ingrained through the habitual patterns of life that make up embodied existence. In other words, some of the lies we believe um, about our bodies or lies generally, some of the lies we believe are so deep and well ingrained, we don't even know that the lies are there. And they distort our relationship with our bodies. But how so? How does believing a falsehood distort our relationship with our bodies? In this way, believing falsehoods about the body can lead us to think that we are gods of our body. can lead us to think that we are gods of our body. We idolize ourselves. Let me give you two examples from our culture right now. Let me give you a statement, and you tell me if you can spot the lies. Here's the statement. This is my body, and I can do whatever I want with it. This is my body, and I can do whatever I want with it. Can you spot the two lies in that claim? The first lie is that our bodies are ours absolutely. Our bodies are ours absolutely. The second lie follows from it, and that's the lie that we can do whatever we want with our bodies. And you see this in the culture in a couple of um, very contentious issues in our day. Uh, think, for example, about the logic of abortion. The logic of abortion is basically it's the woman's body, and what? Therefore, she has the right to choose what to do with it. And you see this kind of false logic in the transgender movement, for example. It's a little bit differently, but it goes something like this. My, my body doesn't fit who I think I am. So therefore, I can do whatever I want to my body in changing it. And both of those arguments assume that our bodies absolutely, that's an important word, absolutely belong to us, and therefore we have a right to do with them what we will. But what if our bodies don't belong to us absolutely? What if our bodies belong to us relatively? In relative relationship to other human beings, my body and your body belong to us and cannot be taken. That's called bodily integrity. It's an important legal concept. And in relative relationship with other human beings, we can, within boundaries, do what we wish. That's called bodily autonomy, also an important legal concept. Bodily integrity and bodily autonomy are important concepts between human beings. So if we say, this is my body, you cannot have it or take it, when talking to another human being, we're on solid ethical and legal ground. And you see how this applies to everything from privacy People can't look on your body without your permission. Uh, how it applies to sexual ethics. People can't take from you sexually without your permission. Consent matters. How it applies to something like slavery or um, employment law. 
No one has the right to take the body of another. Each of us has the right to possess and control our bodies in relationship to other human beings. However, bodily integrity and bodily autonomy do not mean that in relationship to God, we have an absolute right to our bodies and a right to do whatever we wish with our bodies. That's a falsehood that distorts our relationship both to our bodies and distorts our relationship to God by making us God rather than God. The truth is, God made us and therefore he owns us body and soul. The God who made us and owns us never tells us in the Bible that we have a right to do whatever we wish with our bodies. In fact, the body, as we said last week, is itself our first encounter with God's law because the body limits us. The body is our first contact with God's rule. And if the body wasn't enough to introduce us to God's rule and God's limit, God, in Genesis 3, speaks verbally and gives a verbal command that limits Adam and Eve. He says, do not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree. That simple command actually demonstrates God's control over our bodies. Even the everyday, commonplace, mundane actions of touching, taking, biting, tasting, swallowing. All the things that go into eating, God's command is meant to govern what our bodies do. God was making it clear that their bodies belong to him absolutely and to them relatively. So we live in our bodies, but our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to God. We are more like renters than owners. Yes, you can hang your pictures on the wall. You can, you can paint the wall of your body. You can arrange the, the furniture of your body, so to speak. But don't forget that the lease says you're renting and God owns. So you must not believe any falsehood at all, and especially any falsehood about our bodies, because it will distort our relationship to our bodies by making us gods of our body rather than God. That's the first way. We are disordered in our relationship with our bodies since the fall. Here's the second way. It's because of our desire. The second factor is desire distorts our relationship with our body. I get that from Genesis 3, verse 6. There the Bible says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice the chain reaction in this verse. It goes from saw to delight to desired to took and ate and gave. It's as if in Genesis chapter 3 verse 6, God invites us to watch film in slow motion. First she saw. There would have been no problem in just seeing the fruit. The eyes are made to see. If we have vision, we cannot not see, right? If that were all Eve did was observe the fruit, we'd still be in the garden at that. But notice now, she then delighted. In other words, she found pleasure in the fruit. She found pleasure in what she saw. She considered it good and beautiful. Now, again, 
finding pleasure in God's creation, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. However, what made Eve's delight wrong was she was delighting in something God forbid. If God forbids a good thing, then it is for us a bad thing to delight in it. If God forbids a good thing, then it is for us a bad thing to delight in it. She was taking bodily pleasure in something God says she could not have. If she had refused to delight in the fruit that God had forbidden, again, we would still be in the garden. But now notice, after the, the delight came the desire. Keep in mind that Eve, up until this point, was without sin. So we're getting a pretty good picture of how God designed the body and the person to operate. What we delight in, we desire. That's just natural, and it's almost impossible to delight in something and not at the same time want it. So Eve began to covet or desire but God had forbidden. And the next steps were almost guaranteed. She took and ate and gave. In those bodily actions, sin was born. Eve crossed the line in those simple bodily movements. Taking, eating, and giving. And notice that sin loves company. She didn't eat by herself. She gave to Adam. So, Sin spread from body to body. But how do our desires distort our relationship with our bodies? Well, in this way. Desires distort our relationship with our bodies by becoming gods that rule over our bodies. If this process in Genesis 3, 6 is, isn't put in check, then seeing and desiring uh, our, our desires will become our gods. They will rule us. Our appetites become idols that our bodies serve. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul uses this very language in the New Testament. In Philippians 3, verse 18, he referred to some whose God was their belly. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, he referred to those who serve not our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. So our desires can replace God's rule in our life. And if that happens, our bodies become slaves of our desire instead of slaves of Christ. And we, be, we begin to practice a functional idolatry based on our desire. There's an interesting illustration of this in church history. Uh, in the first, second century, the group called the Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Uh, it's the Greek word that means knowledge. And the Gnostics were all about this claim, that in order to be saved, you had to have this gnosis, this secret knowledge, right? Now, there were some other things that they believed as well. Uh, many of the Gnostics believed that everything physical and material was evil, that what was really holy and good was the spirit. Now, that played out in how they viewed desire. So you had two groups. You had one group who decided that all desire, all pleasure, since it involved the material body, was effectively evil. And so what you need to do was avoid pleasure. Those are the ascetics. And you had others who said, well, no, if the body doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you do with it. 
So, you know, you can participate in every kind of pleasure that you want to. Uh, and that has no effect on your spirit, which is holy and good and, and not touched by the body. Those are the antinomians. Those are the ones who are against the law, against any restriction on their behavior. So they engage in all kinds of drunkenness and orgies and, and the like. They have the same problem. They misunderstand the body. They don't have a good theology of the body. And they, they therefore have a, a misunderstanding of desire. And in one case, desire uh, drives them away from good and healthy uses of the body. In the other case, desire drives them into destructive, sinful uses of the body. So how we think about the body and how we think about desire matters tremendously in terms of whether or not we have a properly ordered relationship with our bodies or whether our relationship with our bodies are disordered by desire and our desires have become our gods. Third factor. So we've seen how falsehood distorts our relationships with the body. We've seen how desire can distort our relationship with our bodies. Number three, shame. It's the third factor in this text that disorders our relationship to the body. Compare Genesis 2.25 with Genesis 3.7. In Genesis 2.25, um, God has finished his days of creation. He has made Adam and Eve, and he has placed them in the garden. Adam and Eve are, are now married, and um, they are, they're there in all of that um, original goodness. And Genesis 2.25 says basically that they were together, they saw each other, and they were naked and unashamed. Not ashamed. Why does the Bible point that out? So we have thing to say, unless the Bible is trying to focus us on something important. Adam and Eve, this is what I think is important there. Adam and Eve were seeing themselves the way God meant them to see themselves. The body is very good, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And that was Adam and Eve's assessment of their bodies and each other's body. Naked and unashamed. This is good. They did not have distorted ideas of beauty. There was no sinful comparison trap to fall into. They were comfortable in their own skin. They were comfortable with their body shape, whatever it was. They were comfortable with their weight. They were comfortable with their hair texture and skin color and eye color and no shape. There was no sense that anything was wrong with their bodies. They were naked and unashamed because there is nothing wrong with their bodies. Genesis 2.25, they possess a kind of freedom in their embodied selves. They accepted themselves and accepted each other bodily. So therefore, there was no hiding from one another. Full freedom and transparency was the culture in the garden. There's no sense of risk associated with being naked. They were free. But now notice how all of that changes when, when they sin. So jump over to Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, where we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
As soon as they disobeyed God, believing the serpent's lie rather than the truth, their perception of their body was immediately changed. They, they, the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. Well, they had always been naked. But now they, they're knowing this reality with a twist, with a distortion of sin. They see themselves with a sinful perception. How they think about their bodies has has forever been changed. Now, they notice nakedness in a way that they didn't before. Nakedness becomes something fragile rather than freeing. Nakedness becomes something polluted rather than pure. Their nakedness all of a sudden becomes risky instead of rewarding. The body becomes a, a source of guilt and shame. That's why they make fig leaves to cover themselves. And notice, they develop a very specific preoccupation with a particular area of the body. They make for themselves loincloths. Not hats or shoes or sunglasses. They only make blindfolds to keep themselves from seeing things or being tempted. They make loincloths because this fallen knowledge of the body creates a myopic focus on the sexual centers of the body. So how they would view reproductive organs would be distorted. So see the transition. Because of sin, they've gone from naked and unashamed to covered and ashamed. And beneath that covering, leaves, is a body that was once called very good that they now feel ashamed about. How does shame distort our relationship with our bodies? Mainly by making us withdraw. Makes us withdraw from our own bodies. Makes us withdraw from the bodies of others. Makes us withdraw from God. We withdraw because those negative feelings and judgments about our bodies cause us to feel unsafe and unwanted around others. So as a result, we make then images, images of the body to, to serve as gods. Body image becomes something that, that rules over us, and, and we sort of enter into this quest to, to change our bodies, to alter our bodies, to um, create different bodies or inhabit different bodies. Because that image is a, is a cruel idol. Images are horrible idols, actually. And one reason is because um, the definition of beauty, the ideal body, changes all the time for both men and women. I'll give you a quick little history lesson of, of beauty. In ancient Greece, from 800 to 146 BC, uh, men are um, sort of seen as, as um, beautiful when they are muscular and lean and have Apollo's belt. They got the rock-hard abs, and now here they have, like, no fat, so it looks like Apollo's belt around the loins. You see them in statues and other things, um, the sort of perfect physique. The ancient Greeks thought that the woman's body was actually an aberration of men's body. So, so men were the sort of um, main image of beauty. And women were considered beautiful if they had sort of largest hips and full bosom and were symmetrical in their features. Come down to the Middle Ages, that long period from about 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., uh, 
images of beauty change. Men go from Adonis and, and, and Atlas to uh, being usually pictured as basic and healthy looking on average and, and usually covered because of the religious sensibilities of the era. In the same way, women, the idea of beauty of women is just basic, healthy looking, maybe long and slender and symmetrical uh, with, a, with the soft sort of midsection around belly. I was considered beautiful in the Middle Ages. And we come down to the Renaissance period. 1300 to 1500 AD, the image of beauty changes, again, back to the muscular for men. So men are lean and muscular. Think of Leonardo da Vinci's. You may have seen a sketch of that picture of a man with perfect proportions. That's beauty, muscular and proportionate. For women, the idea of beauty shifts for the first time to sort of emphasize fertility and sensuality. We go from the clothed look of the Middle Ages to now back to new pictures of, of, of women. Curviness, pale, uh, flushed cheeks, soft, round faces. That's the Renaissance era. When we get to the Elizabethan era, uh, the, the Victorian era, get to the period after the French Revolution, things change again. For men, uh, beauty in the early sort of period, uh, uh, era of that period, uh, men become what's called macaronis. Uh, these were English men who went to Italy and they discovered uh, Italian pasta, macaroni. They came back to England and other places and, you know, to show themselves fanciful and well-traveled, they, they ordered macaroni at, at restaurants and whatnot. And their style of dress changed to become more slim and feminine. This is when men began to wear uh, wigs and powdered wigs and makeup. Similar thing happens for women. Lots of lots of powder, lots of makeup, layers and layers uh, of makeup. Uh, pale becomes uh, a sort of status symbol because people who worked outdoors had tans. Tans were thought to be something associated with the lower classes. So pale skin was the aristocratic, the rich. So the paler you look, um, the, the more sort of powerful and prestigious you were supposed to be. Then we come to the Gilded Age. This is roughly a hundred years or so, 1800s to the early 1900s. This is where things change most radically for men because the ideal uh, body image for men goes from um, sort of the slim uh, and muscular, uh, even sometimes with the macaronis, the slightly effeminate, the ideal body image goes to um, weight, body mass. Um, they're, they're literally fat clubs um, that are popular in this period because weight is now a symbol of success. It's a symbol of wealth. Uh, it's a symbol of the ability to provide. And, and in these fat clubs, um, they're not like weight loss places. These are actually uh, gentlemen's clubs um, that you can't get into unless you weigh, say, like over 200 pounds or uh, in some cases to be 300 pounds was seen as, as ideal in that way. Of course, that was never the case for women because of um, double standards of society. Uh, and in that same period of the Gilded Age, uh, women are putting on corsets, uh, sort of tighten their midsections. Uh, what's ideal is larger bosom and um, thinner waist. Still pale is seen as the ideal. Until we come down to the sort of Hollywood era, 1920s to 1940s up until about the 1960s. And in the Hollywood era, uh, muscular, 
but not ripped, becomes the standard. So you may have heard of Atlas Gyms. Charles Atlas is one of the guys who's credit with founding the sort of bodybuilding and the fitness industry. Uh, he's muscular, but he's he's not ripped. Um, later on, uh, the sort of executive look for men comes into play. So tall, dark, and handsome Sean Connery uh, is the is the sort of poster boy. At the same time, in the Hollywood era, uh, beauty images for for women have changed. Uh, in the early part of that era, the 1920s, when you got the Roaring Twenties and the, and the flapper dancers, it's almost a boyish look, shorter hair rather than long hair, uh, flat chested, very thin, almost no waist. Well, that gives way around 1940, 1950, after the war, when nobody wants to look like they've been on rations and are sick uh, because of the war, that gives way to a, a, a fuller bodied um, sort of um, figure and, and body image. So you think about Marilyn Monroe as the sort of um, beauty image for the Hollywood, the classic Hollywood era. Most people don't know that Marilyn Monroe was a size 14. She was a full-figured woman um, in that sense. Things change again between the 1960s and today. So for men, uh, thin and lanky in the early part of the 60s is the ideal body type uh, based on rockers like Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Around the 1980s, that gives way to the hard body, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not only are you muscular, but you're ripped now, um, detailed and, and, and uh, muscular. Women's body images travel a similar period from the 1960s to uh, today. In the 1960s, Twiggy is the most famous um, supermodel. She's very thin, waifish uh, in that way. But that gives way in the 1980s to um, the sort of tall, uh, slender but toned, uh, fit um, workout sort of image, uh, and, and the supermodel image. Again, tall, uh, large bosom, thin west, waist, and um, slight hips. Why go through all of that? Really only to make one point. That what we call beautiful has always been a moving target. Trying to be beautiful has usually meant distorting our bodies in favor of an image. And often becoming beautiful has endangered our health and endangered our lives. The issue, as you hear me go through those eras and those different sort of definitions of beautiful, the issue is not that any of us were born in the wrong era, right? If we'd only been in this sort of... Uh, Victorian era, we might have been beautiful. That's not how to think about that. The issue is that our bodies are perfectly fine as God designed them in all of their diversity. And the world, the world is lost. We struggle to believe that our bodies are fine and to believe that the world has it wrong. But, but that's exactly the case. And that struggle is deep. So let's talk a little bit about um, body image here. One study found that 63% of women participating in that study identified their weight as the key factor, the key factor in determining how they feel about themselves. A, a more key factor than family or school or career. So for many women, they can have a wonderful family, they can be well-educated and be killing it in their career, but if their weight isn't where they want it to be, they feel terrible about themselves. 
86% of women are dissatisfied with their bodies, according to another study, and want to lose weight. This rocked me. 14% of five-year-old girls report going on diets. But by the time they're 10, that percentage goes up to 80%. 80% of our 10-year-olds, our girls, we're putting on diets. What's wrong with us? The bathroom scale determines the self-perception of more women than the Bible. Which, which, which way that arrow points or that, that number goes, whether up or down, impacts a lot of people's day far more than the scripture. It's not hard to see why. Young girls will see 400 to 600 images every day. They will see those images desire those images, and try and take and become those images. And all those images of so-called beautiful women, they don't look like most women in the world. One survey found that uh, only 1.8% of the world's women meet the so-called beauty standards of the day. 1.8%. And that that makes sense of another finding from another survey that only 2% of women feel like they're beautiful. This, this is how distorted our, image, our, our, our relationship with our bodies are. And it's no wonder that so many disorders are developed out of this image-obsessed culture. From body dysmorphic disorder, that's imagining yourself to be ugly rather than what you actually look like, to anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, to depression. As one writer put it, when you're surrounded by constant reminders that the way you look is unwelcome, it's natural to develop anxiety about your body and to fixate on changing. That's where we are as a culture. That's where we are very often inside the church. When, when image becomes a functional God, then we will at least be ashamed of our bodies, just like Adam and Eve and their sin. And, and we will often go to great lengths to change our bodies, sometimes in dangerous and unhealthy ways. Beloved, sometimes beauty is just another word for worldly. That's why I like Matthew Lee Anderson's comment here. He writes, We are to dress ourselves with a holy indifference to the broken standards of beauty and with the confidence that our identity lies not in our conformity to this world, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are to dress ourselves in a holy indifference to the world's standards of beauty and clothe ourselves in Christ. Make one quick application for us as a church. Because our, our relationships with our bodies are distorted by shame, um, body shaming is a particularly harmful thing. It's a tremendous uh, way to damage each other, to shame each other for our bodies, or to shame ourselves uh, over our bodies. This is why noticing someone else's body or our own body in the wrong way, it, it has a way of interrupting or destroying friendships and fellowship. It it removes safety and freedom from the community. Body shaming makes us so wrongly aware of our bodies that that we just don't want to be with others. So, beloved, let us be a a community that that never engages in body shaming, Not, not with yourself or with others. 
Don't tell jokes about other people's bodies or your body or talk down about your own. I do that. So so easy to do that. That's self-deprecating humor. And on one level, it's fine. But but if we are reinforcing the, the worldly notions of, of beauty, then we probably need to stop that. I, I need to stop that. We want to create safe conversations and, and safe communities for people to inhabit their bodies with freedom. Because in Christ, we shouldn't be ashamed. He's redeemed our bodies. He's loved our bodies. He has pledged that we will keep our bodies for all of eternity. And one day, we'll think about our bodies again the way Adam and Eve thought about theirs. Which brings us to a fourth thing that distorts our relationships with our bodies. Number four, fear. Fear. Fear disorders our relationships with our body and with God. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God comes looking for them. They hide. And God God calls them out. And notice Adam's justification for why he's hiding from God in Genesis 3, verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. So not only is Adam ashamed, here he adds he's afraid. And he's afraid, notice the reason, because he's naked. His perception of his body has, has so distorted, been, been distorted, that he doesn't even want to present himself to God the way God made him. The way God left him. God had left him undressed. He was naked and unashamed at the end of chapter 2. But now he's ashamed and he's afraid even of his nakedness before God. But here's the thing, hiding in fear, fear in response to our bodies, it, it dehumanizes us. To be embodied is to be seen and to risk disclosure. In other words, the body is a revelation. The body reveals us to others. It's the, it's the first way that, that people come to see us and to recognize us and, and to differentiate us from other people. Our, our, bodies, our bodies reveal us. But, but sin makes that revelation risky now. So fig leaves are used to cover them. Adam and Eve literally had fig leaves. And we, we have all kinds of figurative fig leaves. Threats are avoided. And so fear becomes a god and, and safety and idol. Our, our, our bodies can be controlled by fear or controlled positively by a, a quest or lust for safety. And, and that we can become afraid, even of our God. Fear dominates us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 15 says that all of us, through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. But this is where the gospel is really good news. Because in the broader context of Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, this is what the Bible says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's, that's you and I, beloved. We have flesh and blood. We are embodied. He himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partic partook of the same things. Flesh and blood. Why? That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the gospel. Christ has come into the world in a human body. 
And he has come in that body to deliver the rest of us who are embodied, to deliver us from fear. Specifically the fear of death, which is our greatest fear, but also the fear of all other lesser things. And he has given his body on the cross to destroy the devil. And not only to destroy the devil who has the power of death, but to deliver us through that same sacrifice from our own fear of death. For our own fear of our bodies ceasing to live. The gospel's deliverance is is so complete that it it frees us from this disordered relationship to our bodies. To to see Jesus as perfect man, who, by the way, the Bible says, had no beauty that we should esteem him. Some of us are trying to be more beautiful than Jesus. Some of us are more afraid of being in the body than Jesus. And he has come to deliver us from that from the sin that produces those disorders and to deliver us to the full and perfect humanity that he himself is. And so as we turn from sin and turn to Christ through faith, confessing our sin, even the sins that we have committed in the body and the sinful views we have of the body, Christ renews us, washes us by his blood, conforms us to his image, to his likeness, renews us in the image of God and begins to reorder our relationship, not just to God and to others, but he begins to reorder our relationships to our bodies. This is the good news. We live in these bodies. Christ has saved these bodies. Christ is renewing these bodies. uh, And we can then offer our bodies to God, the God who made them as the absolute owner of them, so that we don't believe the falsehood that we are our own gods. And we can then submit our desires to God and desire the things that he says to desire and to reject the things that he forbids so that God is Lord even of our desires and and we can now live without shame because Christ is our righteousness. And we can live now without fear because we have been accepted in Christ. Next week, with God's help, we'll think about how to grow in sanctification as it relates to understanding our bodies and living in them as God has intended. But for this week, may God give us grace to be reordering our relationships to our bodies and in Christ overcoming the distortions uh, that the enemy has produced. That will be for our joy and it will be for our freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to our souls. Grant repentance and faith uh, to those who are yet to believe. And grant repentance and sanctification to those who are yours. Teach us to live embodied lives, fully embodied, seeing ourselves the way you see us. And teach us, O Lord, to offer ourselves up to you in faith, in hope, in love, and in joy. In Jesus' name. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that God should give his own.